All right, we're back finally with a new episode of Write You a Song, and we'll get to it here in just a moment. But first, I've got some unfinished business. You might recall, if you listened to the last episode with Drew Parker, I kidded him about his love of um, pineapple and mayonnaise sandwiches. And at the end of the interview, I promised him I would try one. So I'm a man of my word. I've got one here in front of me right now, and I'm going to take a bite. Drew Parker swears by them. Let's see if I do the same. A bit into it. I'm, you know what? That's not bad. That's not that's not bad at all. I only made a small one because I figured I'd throw it away, but I think I'm going to finish this. Not right now. I'm not rude. But Drew Parker, if you're listening, I'd give that a thumbs up. That's surprisingly not terrible. Now, back to the business at hand. It is truly amazing how one simple, polite gesture can utterly change a person's life. I am Tom Maley, and this is Write You a Song. As a teenager, our latest guest took a family vacation to Nashville, and even though he was already deeply interested in music, he had no idea somebody like him, a young man from Pennsylvania, could do it for a living until the writer of one of country music's most iconic songs spent a few minutes talking to him following a show the family attended at the legendary Bluebird Cafe. Without that simple gesture of kindness which that writer has probably done a thousand times. Eric Church might never have had songs like Give Me Back My Hometown or Talladega or Drink In My Hand. Carrie Underwood might never have recorded So Small or Thomas Rep, T-Shirt, John Party, Head Over Boots, Casey Musgraves may never have won a Grammy for her album, Same Trailer, Different Park. And the Nashville songwriting community might never have had one of its most collaborative, creative, and encouraging members. But thankfully, he did. So let's get on with it. Luke Laird, now on Write You a Song. And I'm going to go finish the sandwich. I was just telling you uh, before we started, like, there's so much information about you. Like, I don't even know where to begin. Um, It's just, like, I I could probably do this uh, in in kind of like a a weekly series, roll it out over the next six, seven months, and we could probably cover everything that you've done uh, in your time in Nashville. Um, And the thing is, you look so damn young. (laughs) <laughs> well, but the thing is, I'm not. It just means I'm getting older. I'm 44 years old. Uh, so, yeah, I've been old. doing this about 20 years, I guess, you know, as they say, professionally. It's fascinating that uh, you really, the first time you went to Nashville was uh, as a teenager, you were on vacation with your mm-hmm. family? Yeah. Yeah, back in, I was in high school back in, let's see what year, that would have been 1995. Um, I was 17, just loved country music like everybody it seemed like at that by that point and uh yeah i really wanted to come to nashville we we came here from pennsylvania family vacation my sisters loved country music as well and i'd already been writing songs but i never i never crossed my mind that it's there's a career in songwriting i just didn't hadn't thought that much about it and we saw a show at the bluebird cafe and that night just really changed everything for me. I was just, it was just the coolest thing. I was hearing these songs I knew from the radio, but seeing the people who wrote them. I remember after that show, I actually got all the writers autographs back, you know, free cell phone selfies or whatever. You'd still get autographs. And mm-hmm. yeah, man, that, that, that trip really, that kept me on fire and I, I couldn't get to Nashville fast enough. So you had a chance at that Bluebird show to, was it, did you meet Tony Arreta? I did. Yeah, I'm I not sure him. if I'm saying his last name right, it, but he, he wrote uh, among <laughs> other, Arata, yeah. Yeah, um, one of his uh, better-known songs, a little ditty called The Dance. Yeah, you may have heard it. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, man, he was just such a, and he, of course, played that song, Um and he was just so kind and soft spoken and I was just like, Wow, this is this is amazing. Um, I can actually sit here and stand here and talk to this guy. Hopefully I wasn't too annoying, but I even had my picture taken with them. Um, it was just so cool. Why it, it, I was gonna ask you this later, but just the fact that you mm-hmm. talk about how nice and accommodating he was and all the songwriters mm-hmm. that I've talked to, I mean, there is a common thread through all of it and it's cooperation, collaboration, yeah. um, being open to 
the ideas of others, being open to meet other people. Why is the Nashville songwriting community that way? It, it really is. Uh, yeah. In our world, it's kind of unusual to have people who cooperate sort of so well together. Yeah, I, man, that's a that's a great question. I think, you know, I think some of that is due to just like the Southern culture, like Southern hospitality, maybe, even though most of us aren't from here. It's just, if you go out to a, a restaurant or anywhere in Nashville, you're going to kind of get that, that Southern hospitality. I think part of that, um, part of, part of the reason for the accommodation in Nashville is that, and, that, and then also, I just think that, um, you know, as a songwriter, I don't, we aren't, for the most part, aren't the ones that are like the faces. Um, we, we don't have like fans bombarding us. Um, we live, for the most part, a pretty simple, normal life, work five days a week, have families. Um, and I think this town is, is it is such a, I mean, it's, Nashville's not a small town, but it has that feel within the music business. Everything's so relational. And so I think if you're someone who can be difficult to work with, it it really just doesn't, you don't do yourself any favors. I mean, I'll say, I could probably count on one hand, maybe less than great experiences with other songwriters because there's just no room for a, a big ego um, in Nashville because there's just too many talented people and nobody needs us. I mean, there's a brand new song, thousands of new writers. It feels like every year moving to Nashville, really talented writers. Um, and so you, you kind of have to stay humble and try to not be difficult to work with because I mean, first of all, it just seems like the right thing to do. But second of all, it's just bad business not to. Yeah, but at the same time, when you talk about you know, new writers are coming in all the time, uh, there are some people that would like guard their success jealousy. And yet, you know, yeah. songwriter after songwriter after songwriter. Um, and, and, and I've talked with songwriters who are brand new and, and songwriters who've been around forever. Everybody is just about like welcoming that person into the room figuratively and, mm -hmm. and literally and making them feel at home and, and, and learning from each other. That's one of the things that, that yeah. I absolutely love. Oh yeah. I tell people all the time. I, I mean, I learn as much from a brand new writer as I do from a hall of fame songwriter, because when it comes to creativity and writing songs, like no one, no one person does it the same or is the same and everybody has something unique to offer. So I think the more open you are to that in a room, it just opens it up to, to really get a better song when you can recognize when someone says a great line and don't have to be like always the one driving it and be, being willing to listen is just important as having an idea. So yeah, I've, I've noticed like the writers that I work with, everybody's pretty open to like, what's the best idea that day or if somebody's on and they're like, man, I have this whole verse and you see that it's really good. Don't, don't try to just say something just so you can say, Oh, I got a line in there, but, but be smart about it. I, I tell people all the time, I attribute a lot of my success to just being knowing when to shut up and not thinking you have to, have, I, I mean, it's, it's really, it's really true. And I think when you're confident in yourself as a writer um, you know, the, the longer you do this and the more you hopefully mature as a writer, you can be confident in not saying something too. And just recognizing like a fresh new idea or like, wow, that, that person does something I don't do. I, I really would love to be a part of that. Now it, it sounds so utopian, but I'm sure there are frustrating moments how do you handle those the difficult moments or somebody's stuck on an idea that ain't working and, and you got to just be honest with them how do you how do you guys uh, work through that kind of thing man it's it's i think over time you just kind of learn to finesse because the thing thing you don't want to do is because you know as writers we can be pretty sensitive people and you don't want to be the person like oh that's not a good idea like, okay, let's explore it for a minute. And then 
if it's just not working, always be willing to, I mean, I've had ideas. I thought, Oh, this is great. Um, I think somebody's going to be into it. And I can just kind of, they may not say, I don't like that, but I can just kind of tell it's they're not really on board here. You have to be willing to just switch gears and like, Hey, let's, let's explore some other ideas. And that, I mean, that does happen all the time, but I think the more I've noticed, the more that I do it, it's not really seen as a huge problem in the room, but it's, but you kind of just have to be in tune with body language. And especially if you're working with an artist, you could have a song of the year idea and think this is, this person would be perfect. This would be a huge hit. But if you can tell they're not really excited about it, it's to me, it's always better to just either give it a, a break, get, get back together another day, or just switch gears completely and say, Hey, what's, what's some other, stuff you're thinking about or what's some music you're into or you know are there any songs that you love or or ideas that you were kind of thinking about or what's going on in your personal life let's write something about that something that's personal and they're always going to feel more attached to it i apologize i don't know if you can hear in the background but i've got a like a 15 year old chihuahua and he wandered into the room and he's having an asthma attack oh well i've got i don't know if you can hear that or not hold on one second I've got somebody outside weed eating, so I hopefully that was <laughs> No, you sound fine, but my poor he he does this like fifteen times a day. It's nothing like life threatening. It just is he's old, you know. It's like he was a smoker yeah. all his life. Hang on one second. You're you're giving this great answer and in the, in, in my headphones I'm hearing hack, hack, hack. <laughs> I I apologize. I think it'll be fine though. I, I, I love that answer. And it, it almost seems like people who can't handle you know, switching gears and, and being versatile, they're just going to sort of wash out. It really is true. I've been in a room before where I've seen a writer who really good writer, very successful. Um, but working with an artist and noticed that they, they kind of felt you could tell they kind of saw themselves as the artist in the room and we got a good song. This happened multiple times, but I could tell, I already knew leaving that day, that artist isn't going to cut the song because they didn't really feel, feel like they were listened to. Mm. They kind of just got bulldozed over. And that, in those days that, that can be pretty frustrating. Cause you're like, man, it was just my, my first time writing with someone, whether it's an artist or just another writer, it's like, I just want everybody to have a good experience that day because well, songwriting isn't necessarily easy. It, it should, it just shouldn't, I mean, it should be fun for the most part. Um, even when you're writing a sad song, but like, this is music, like we get to do this. And if it feels just like a grind all the time and no one's excited, it's, it just, it kind of shines through, I feel like in the music. And you actually, I, I think you've said you prefer writing with artists. Yes. I don't necessarily prefer. I mean, if I said that, I don't, I don't know. Maybe I did. I don't I probably lied, I guess. I don't know. But I, I I don't have like necessarily a preference. Oh, it has to be a artist or writer. Because the reality is most of the artists that I work with were songwriters first. So mm-hmm. there's not a whole lot. Of, I don't really do many of the, hey, this person's never written songs before. Can you get in the room? And I mean, I have done that, but ideally I don't, I would rather not do that kind of writing. Um. Who you talk about, and I had Brett James on a long time ago, um, uh-huh. and he talked about what a surprisingly good songwriter Carrie Underwood is. A lot of people think that she's just, you know, yeah. this beautiful woman and a powerful voice. But you're, I think, the third or fourth songwriter that I've had on who has talked about being in the room with her and the fact that she has a real spark of creativity uh, on her. Oh, own. yeah. Well, you know, that was an interesting thing because actually my first hit I ever had was with Carrie. It was a, I wrote with Carrie and Hillary Lindsay. It was called So Small. But it was, it was that was the first single off of her second album, Carnival Ride. And I think on her first album, she co-wrote like one song. So yeah, she, did, she wasn't really known as a songwriter, but she decided she wanted to have a, more of a hand in it um, starting her second album. And a lot of times, and I'm sure people did this when they heard that, but people rolled their eyes like, oh gosh, here we go, an artist, they're just trying to get a more piece of the music or whatever. 
but Carrie, I mean, she came in there, you know, had ideas, had songs started. Um, it was, it was real. I was really impressed. I mean, she's very, she's a great songwriter and very easy to work with as well. Um, so yeah, that was, that was a pretty cool experience. What you got if you ain't got love? The kind that you just want to give away. It's okay to open up. Go ahead and let the light shine through. I know it's hard on a rainy day. You want to shut the world out and just be left alone. But don't run out on your faith. Cause sometimes. Before we get too much into talking about specific songs, I, I do love the fact uh, that you you taught yourself. You, you went to Middle Tennessee State. Uh, you got a degree mm-hmm. in recording industry management. Um, yep. But you talk about you taught yourself the basic elements of music theory just by listening to songs and dissecting them. I, and I wonder, what, mm-hmm. when did you know that's what you were doing when you were listening to songs? I mean, were you like conscious of it from the, I'm going to figure out how this is a hit song or was that just something that kind of uh, morphed yeah. that you morphed into? I, I wasn't dissecting and saying, what, what makes this a hit? I was more because I started doing that. I mean, probably in elementary school and it was really when I heard a song, I liked, I just want to learn how to play it and sing it. So I knew enough how to play chords on a guitar and piano. And once I realized, Oh, most of these songs, you know, popular songs are the same kind of structure as as far as like, there's only three or four chords. Um, and so the way I would learn them, this was pre internet where you could just type in a lyric and, or type in a song and they would, you could print the lyrics out. So I had my boombox, and if it was a song I liked, I would play along to it, figure out the chords. But then to learn the lyrics, I would go one line at a time, write it down in a notebook, and you start seeing a structure like, oh, these first two lines rhyme. Here's another two lines. There's a channel or pre-chorus, as we call it. It's like a two-line thing, and then here's your chorus. And I just started seeing the, the patterns in songwriting you know might be two or three verses or two verses in a bridge and not even knowing what those were called quite yet I mean I learned pretty quickly but it was it was really kind of like getting an education on how to put a how to put a song together and how to put a commercial song together and then when I started writing you're kind of just copying that structure in a sense I wasn't necessarily consciously doing that but it's like oh, I need to get to this thing that repeats a lot pretty quickly, which, you know, of course, is the chorus. And, uh, yeah, I mean, I had notebooks filled with, I'd hear a new George Strait song I liked, I'd write it down, um, have the lyrics um, that I hand-wrote. Um, so, yeah, it was it was really good, uh, good training for me, and um, obviously I still use that skill. <laughs> And another thing that, you know, as you got more into songwriting and, and, and even producing and, and being in the studio, mm-hmm. uh, I thought this was interesting that early on you used GarageBand to help you communicate your ideas with the studio musicians. Yeah, that's, that's right. So when I, I, I had very little recording knowledge, even when I was in college, I was kind of intimidated by the studio. Now, when I was in high school, I did have a four-track cassette recorder. Anybody's worked with one of those, it's it can be pretty rough. And it sounded rough, too. I mean, part of that is 
is the the guy who was using it, which was me. Um, but but yeah, I always was like, well, I'm just a songwriter, so I just need my guitar, a notebook, and that's it. And then I can let what I what I did after I when I signed my first publishing deal, I had these songs I'd written. Would hire a um, session leader, you know, a musician, and they would chart out my songs. I just sit there and play them and sing them for them, and then we'd go in have a full band they kind of just play back their interpretation and i i heard sounds in my head but i didn't know verbally necessarily how to communicate those ideas always so i would get these demos it would sound really good and sound like stuff that you could do on the radio but it was like my idea never got seen through completely it's like i had the lyric melody all that down but then when it came to production i i just I would, it would kind of fall flat. I'd hear it. I'm like, man, I don't even think I like that as good as the guitar vocal. But, but in 2000, I don't know, four or five, I bought a laptop and all the, all those Mac laptops come with GarageBand. And I just pulled it up one day and I just started, oh, I can make a drum groove here. And so much of it was just the rhythm of my songs. Like, oh, I, I see what I'm doing here. The way the drum was playing it, I was hearing it more like the kick pattern would be more of this and it changes the whole feel or there'd be a guitar hook that I could just have take time and come up with there. And then when I would take those little sketches into a studio with live musicians, like when I played that for them, they immediately, oh, he's hearing it like this. And it changed everything for me. It started making my, my demo sound more unique. I was kind of seeing not only the lyrical ideas through, but lyrical melody, but also the actual production ideas. And, and that really changed things for me. That's like you're, it's like you're a castaway and you figured out how to communicate with the natives on the island you washed up on. <laughs> yeah, because I'm not a musician, musician in the sense of I don't know how to, to speak the language. Um, I mean, I know better now, but I don't really know theory. Um, I'm just like, I kind of hear it like this, but with musicians, I think a lot of times, even when I was like producing artists, I would take in a playlist of different songs or different bands. Like what I like about this song is how the reverb is on the guitar. I like the drum sound on this particular song. I want to kind of mix all these together. And, and that's, musicians can, they communicate really well, or they, they take direction that, in that sense, better than me trying to just say it verbally, like, well, it kind of needs to sound more such and such. And you may think you're saying one thing in your head and it's coming across to them as something totally different. Well, you learned your stuff because you earned a, a, a Grammy for co-producing same trailer, different park for Casey Musgraves. And do you, I, I'm trying to remember, do you produce that much or do you prefer to stay away from mm-hmm. that and, and concentrate more on the music and the, and the writing? Yeah, so I, I didn't move here to be a producer. I didn't even really know what that was. For me, my best production stuff is like if it's something that's just organic. And so, like, for instance, with Casey, I didn't get – I wasn't hired, like, by a record label or somebody to come produce Casey. It was more we were in the writing room and kind of building these demos as we wrote songs. And she just liked the sound of it. And so – we just continued that once she got the record deal. Between a lunch and dinner rush, Kelly caught that outbound bus to Vegas. And we're all out here talking trash, making bets, lips wrapped around our cigarettes. She always thought she was too good to be a waitress. We all say that we're Again, her ex-husband's in the pen for two to 
along with Shane McAnally, and we kind of just created this sound together. And she's a great producer, too. She's someone, and I think she felt, you know, as a newer artist and writer in town, I think I made her feel comfortable and, and really listened to her ideas. And um, and that that's another thing when I have worked with artists. I've, I've, I've found out that, like, if you can really listen to them, a lot of them have... They may not be known as a producer, but they're all producers because they have these great sonic ideas in their head. And then I just try to, you know, I'll interject some of my own ideas and see how they receive them. But also, really, your goal as a producer is to help the artist kind of see that creative vision through. And I, I do enjoy doing that, but I really enjoy the writing. And as far as production for me, the, the most creative and most fun production I do is just making my own demos. <laughs> and you even, you, you released an album uh, in, was it 2020? Yeah. Yeah. It was kind of when the lockdown happened, I, I started recording stuff on my own. It was, it was all stuff that I'd written by myself. And uh, it was just a great creative outlet. I knew most of these songs were, were so personal that they'd be, I mean, you could pitch a few of them to some artists, but some were just really specific to personal things in my life. And my wife really encouraged me. She's like, I think you should just put it out. Because, I mean, it's so easy to do that now. Um, it's not necessarily easy to do it well, but, uh, but you know, you can release music, and, and um, which, is, which is, I just think, one of the cool things about modern technology is that I could literally write something and record it today and the whole world could hear it tomorrow. So, um, it, that was, that was very creatively fulfilling. Um, that was obviously not a decision of like, I'm going to do this and make a lot of money. I knew that wasn't going to be the case, but fortunately I've had enough success writing for other artists that I was able to afford the time and, uh, to, to make a project that I was proud of and hopefully, put something good out into the world. Well, one of the songs on there that caught my ear was, uh, that's why I don't drink anymore. And it it doesn't get much more personal than what that song is about. Um, and just talk a little bit about that. And then I have a follow-up question. Sure. Yeah. So that was, um, so I got sober back in 2005 and, uh, you know, at first when anybody that's, that's stopped drinking um, can relate to this, but when you go out or when you're hanging out with your buddies or whatever, and they're like, you're not drinking, you know? And it's like, I remember thinking about that. And I, I mean, I probably do the same thing to somebody else. I never took it like, Oh, I can't believe they're bugging me about this. But I wrote down one night, just that's why I don't drink anymore. And I had that kind of in my notebook for a few years. And then I sat down one night on my back porch and, really started thinking about it and like, what are the reasons why I don't drink anymore? Um, and I just was super honest, put it into a song and I thought, well, this, this feels really honest. And, and that's something that I've played, um, different writers nights and stuff like that. And it's really cool. Some of the stories I hear, um, people coming up to me and just seeing how that, on a small scale how that song has affected people or how they've been able to relate to it and I mean that's as a songwriter that's kind of like the best feeling when you write something that connects with people I didn't want to wake up one day regretting the way I never gave my wife and boys what they were looking for a husband and a dad Supposed to make his family sad That's why I don't drink anymore I never could stop at the bus One more was never enough I leaned on the bar so hard That what was more I was on my way to hell Only thinking about myself I'm waking up 
For yourself, but then mm-hmm. you help Walker Hayes uh, write AA, which is they're just two sides of the same coin. Oh man, it's it's so true. And and you know we got together that day. We wrote that with Shane McAnally. Shane wasn't there yet, and I hadn't seen Walker in a long time. And literally, I was just like, hey, you know, you kind of do your small talk. So, um, what's man? How you doing? And he's like, oh, you know, just trying to stay out of AA. <laughs> and literally that song and I had, I kind of had this like feel good track and I started playing it and uh, he's like you know we just got to keep it real like you know I'm just trying to keep my daughters off the pole yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was laughing so hard and literally when he said that I was like oh, gosh I mean can we say that I, and, I, and I even said to him I was like man I don't know I mean I don't I've got two sons. I don't even have a daughter. I don't know if I can write. He goes, well, I got, he's like, I got, he's like, I have a daughter. He's like, that's how we feel. I was like, all right, let's do it, man. You're the artiste. I'm here to help you see your vision. Of course, that's that's the line that everybody's like, oh, man. I'm like, yeah, man, that was all Walker. I'm so glad we stuck with it. Coffee cup, cold and black. Wish you had a little shot of Jack. Size that, can't complain. Just trying to do the dang thing. Might change the oil in my truck. I ain't paying no 35 bucks. Kids need shoes. Mama needs Levi's. And I'm just trying to keep my daughters off the pole. And my son's out of jail. Trying to get to church so I don't go to hell. I'm just trying to keep my wife from figuring out that I'm I think he told me his favorite line of that whole song is, uh, I'm just trying to do the dang thing. Yeah, that's funny. Which is, that's what he would say. And that's what he explained. He said, that's what I would say, you know, and you don't have to be any more deeper poignant than that. And people get it. You get it. You get it. Yeah. Yeah, man. He's, he's, that guy, he's an incredible songwriter. All right. So let, let's talk about, uh, one of your biggest songs which happens to be a drinking song and that's drinking my hand for eric church the story about how that song came to be and then the the work tape afterwards and stuff can you just share this whole thing because it's it's awesome oh yeah so I'll, i'll never forget it um i had i'd been a a fan of Eric's for a long time. And I actually knew his wife, Catherine years back before they were married. She worked at a publishing company here in town. And before I had a publishing deal, I used to play at this place called the broken spoke on Monday nights, me and some other writers, including Matt Ramsey from old dominion. But, um, I, I'd met Eric's wife, Catherine, and she was always real encouraging. Um, just, supportive of my songwriting and stuff like that. And I remember seeing her once and she's like, you and Eric should write sometime. And this was after his first album had already come out. I was like, I, I mean, I would love to, you just call, let me know any, any day, anytime. So she calls me one day. She's like, Hey, Eric's whoever he was supposed to write with tomorrow had something come up. They can't do it. Do you want to, would you want to write? I was like, absolutely. So we get together. First song we write, was a song called over when it's over and it ended up being on his chief album. So we hit it off pretty well. We wrote that song like an hour and a half. So then he asked me to come out on the road with him one weekend along with another writer, Michael Heaney, who's 
been writing songs forever. I mean, he had a number one with George Jones back in like 1981, a song called Still Doing Time. Still doing time in a honky-tonk prison. Still doing time where a man ain't He and Eric have been writing for, for a few years. And so the three of us, I go out on this bus run, and I'll never forget we were in I can't remember if it was South Dakota or North Dakota, but it doesn't matter. It was freezing cold, negative nine degrees. Um, and the bus, they couldn't put the slide outs out because they were afraid of it freezing and not being able to get them back in. And I just remember that whole day, I could, just could not get warm. I mean, the generator was working, but the, the heater on the bus, it was just like struggling. I was, I'm in full winter coat, hat, jeans, boots. Um, but I go in, it was like this, the venue was like an armory or something. There wasn't like, it wasn't, he wasn't like doing big arenas and all that yet. But I went out during the show while he was playing and kind of went out to the front of house and whatever the alcohol situation was there, there was tons of people with like red solo cups. And I just kind of heard in my head, just this one line and it was all I want to do is put a drink in my hand. And so I was like, I don't know if that's a song or if it's a line in the song. Um, so I go out to his bus. He ends up finishing the show, gets on the bus, still got his in-ear monitors in and pulls those out. And I had my guitar. He goes, you working on something? I was like, I don't know, man. I've got kind of this one little line along with three chords. And I just played him that, like, all I want to do is put a drink in the... He's like, oh, man, I love that. Let's let's do that. Let's right now. He sat down, didn't even get his post-show shower yet. And he and Michael Heaney and I started cranking out these verses to that song. And we were writing it so fast that none of us were actually writing it down. I was, I think, recording on my phone. But Eric's wife, Catherine, was sitting up there and had been working on emails, um up there in the front lounge and she just started writing down everything we were saying. And then all of a sudden we had about, I mean, there had to be about 15 verses in that song. <laughs> so then we, we start narrowing it down, come up with what you actually hear. And he was actually out of that, at that time, the tour he was on was, he was opening for Miranda Lambert. So after she came off and got off stage, she comes up to our bus. What are y'all doing? Like, Oh, we 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 just wrote this song, and she's like, "Oh, let me hear it." And so that was the work tape. I don't know if you've heard that, but but I played it, or we played it, and uh, she was just like, "You can hear Miranda on there, like, oh my gosh, that's so good, or something like that." Yeah, early morning, morning, Friday at five, man, I work, 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 but I don't mind. Boss making sure that overtime of this case All I want to do is put a drink in my hand Fill it up, throw it down I got a 60-hour week worth of troubles to drown Ain't need to complicate it, I'm a simple man All you gotta do is put a drink in my hand It was pretty cool, and, uh, you know, that ended up being Eric's first number one song, so I'm really proud of that song, and, like, it's, even in a little songwriter's night, when I play that, it's, it, it probably gets, it may get the best reaction of any of my songs. I think the Miranda quote was, you hear her at the end say, holy shit. Yeah, that sounds more like Miranda. Rock <laughs> <laughs> 
if you don't mind, I know you've got a, a limited schedule, so I just want to like throw some songs out at you and just give us the, yeah. the, the cliff notes story. Cause it, you've got some, some great ones. Um, how did pontoon come about? Oh man. <laughs> okay. So that song I wrote with Barry Dean and Natalie Hemby, two, two of my best friends in Nashville, been writing with them for years. And Natalie and I had actually written a song called fine tune. That was a album cut on a Miranda Lambert album. But the day we wrote that song, or I don't know if it was the day or day after, but she was over at her publishing company playing it for someone, the little demo we did. from next door and they were kind of hearing it through the through the wall they're like what was that song that it sounded like it's called pontoon or something like that he's like no it's fine tune but she tells barry and i that story and when she said they thought we wrote they thought it was a song called pontoon barry and i look at each other and as barry would say that's when the redneck angels sang and we knew we had to write a song called pontoon and so we literally were like, we just laughed through that entire writing process of that song. Back this hill, jump into the water. Untie all the cables and rope. Step onto the astro turf. Get yourself a koozie, let's go. that song i will say we finished it and it wasn't one of those like oh this is an obvious hit song but i knew the way that it made us feel when we wrote it and when i would play it for people the reaction it would get like just for songwriter friends or publishers in town or my wife i thought if this song could just get heard at least high enough on the radio i know there's gonna be a lot of people that hate it but it could be one of those songs that that kind of stands out and reacts and um you know so many great things that song originally it went on hold for Dirk Bentley for a minute it was on hold back when Brooks and Dunn kind of did their first breakup Kicks Brooks had it on hold but nobody was ever really serious about it and at that time Little Big Town had just got a new record deal they're working with the new producer Jay Joyce and it just landed in the with the perfect artist, perfect timing, um, Jay made that production just just take that song to another level. And it was one of those, when I heard it first time on the radio, I mean, it's always exciting when you hear one of your songs, but I was like, man, this thing spans out. And uh, yeah, it was really, really exciting. On the Jumping out the back, don't act like you don't want to 
speaking of songs on hold, talk about T-shirt for Thomas Rhett. And, and you were able to wrestle it away from the guy who had it on hold by praying? Oh, I did I say that? I don't know. I, yes, yeah. I think I think the quote was: "You guys kind of got together and prayed that you could get the song that, that Thomas would get the song, as opposed to who had it on hold. Although it probably would have been a smash if they had done it as well." Well, here's what happened with that song. So Thomas Rhett heard that song; he really liked it. But then he made an album, didn't record it. So we just assumed, "Oh, it's okay to start pitching this again." It went on hold for Tim McGraw. And when that happened, I don't know if Tim ever actually even heard that song. Scott Bush tried to put it on hold for him when he when Tim went over to Big Machine. And TR calls me up. He's like, and he was really upset. He was like, I mean, he wasn't mean or anything. But he's like, man, he just was disappointed. He's like, felt like he got it, it got it pitched out from underneath him. And I was like, Thomas Rip, man, I, I just assumed that you were kind of over it because you made the album, didn't put it on there, which I, I totally understand. Sometimes certain songs don't fit a project. He goes, man, if you can get that song back, I promise I will put it on my next record. And he's one of those guys. He really is like, he's a man of his word. He's super honest. Um, he's a, and he's a songwriter himself. So he, he, he gets kind of what we do. And, Tim never, Tim didn't, and I don't even, I can't remember how it came off hold, but it wasn't dramatic. Um, the the dramatic thing for me was when Thomas Rhett called me up. He's like, man, I can't believe you pitched. And I was like, oh gosh. <laughs> I felt like, well, I, this guy's never going to record any of my songs. And I try to be really honest with him. And he, and he was, you know, fortunately he was very understanding, but it worked out. And, um, you know, nobody, nobody got bent out of shape about it. Thomas Ray and did actually cut it, and it ended up being a hit. And um, it was just, yeah, you just never know where these songs are going to land, which is part of the just thing that makes it so exciting. Get off of work and we meet down at our spot. We had a panio with a view of parking lot. It was two for one and four for two at Christmas lights in the middle of June. All hung up like I was on you. I say, hey, hey, baby, do you want to come over? You say, no way, then you're moving closer. Next thing I know, you were in my T-shirt. Right there, your hair, messed up like a Guns N' Roses video. And last question, and I wish I, I had another hour with you because you've written so many, I mean, just Stone Cold classics, you know, My Hometown, Talladega, uh, Fast for Luke Bryan. Uh, but, but another song, and it was so different when it came out, it was just released, what, two years ago, maybe. Um, and that is uh, John Party's Tequila Little Time, which just the moment that song jumped out, on the radio, those horns were completely different sounding. And was that something yeah. that was in, in, intentional? I, I know John is very into, you know, traditional stuff. Uh, but t- talk about how that song came about because it's just, it just, it stands out. Well, that, and we actually wrote that song out in California, flew into Sacramento, went out to John's mom's house, me and uh, Red Akins and John. And we, we stayed at, John's mom's house for like three days, wrote songs. And that may have been the last day. I remember it was kind of late in the afternoon. We were all just kind of tired. Rhett was laying over on the couch. I thought he was sound asleep, taking a nap. And John and I, we weren't, we didn't really have any songs going, no ideas. So I have my kind of mobile studio out there. And, uh, we kind of start playing this groove and 
I think John started singing that. Da, 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 da. So I, I pulled up a uh, some horn sounds, hmm. and we hit that. And I see Rhett's eyes kind of open, and we just kind of got excited about it. A lot of times as a writer, that's what you're trying to go in a room, like whether it's a line or something musically, you're just trying to find something that gets you excited and inspired. And Rhett, you know, it kind of had this like kind of Tejano flavor. And Rhett, he's like, man, I want tequila. And uh, <laughs> we were laughing, like, I want tequila a little time with you. And I was like, oh my gosh, this dude's country music genius. <laughs> I was like, that is amazing. And I mean, it's so funny how many of these things start as kind of a joke. Pardon me, I don't mean to pry. I saw the tears falling from your eyes and I thought, you're too pretty not to wear a smile. I hope you don't mind if I sit down for a writing that song you know it took us all day to get there but once we we started it it didn't take that long to write and yeah i always love that song i think john's the perfect artist to sing that type of song and the horns to me are really what made that thing stand out and it's also my understanding that's kind of what kept it from going number one i think a few stations just could never get on board for whatever reason you know I heard that, like, oh, it's because of the horns, but I'm just like, that's the dumbest reason I've ever heard. (laughs) I know you got to go. Thank you so much for taking time. Absolutely. Thank you. All right. Take care. Bye-bye. You too. that does it for this episode of Write You a Song. Thank you again to Luke Laird. Thank you for listening. And if this is the first time you've listened to this podcast, we talk to country music's biggest songwriters. And you can go back through the archives. There are dozens to choose from. We've got Ross Copperman in there, Ashley Gorley, Nicole Gallion, Bryce Long, Shane McAnally, Josh Osborne, Ashley McBride, Liz Rose. The list goes on and on and on. And if you haven't yet, make sure you hit that subscribe button and also give us a review because that always helps kind of float this thing out there to the rest of the world. And I would like to throw this out there, too. We're going to take a little bit of a hiatus, but if there is a songwriter that you would like to see featured when we come back, I would love to hear. I'm open to suggestions. Send me an email, tmailey, M-A-I-L-E-Y, at bonneville.com. That's our parent company. And Write You a Song is produced at KNCI Radio Studios in Sacramento, California. But yeah, let me hear who you'd like to have on. Could be a big-name songwriter. Could be somebody who's an up-and-comer. Could be somebody from Americana or the Texas music scene. I'm all ears, and I'll give a consideration. Now, I've got to go downstairs and make a full-size mayonnaise and pineapple sandwich. Thanks, Drew Parker, for the new obsession. Take care, everybody.